You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Thank you all for being here. Before we uh, look into the text, let me just um, mention a couple of things. Um, Well, one thing in particular. Um, First of all, I, I want you to know that I love you. Um, I sat with some pastors this week, and they were like, hey, what do you want your people to know when you stand up and preach? And there were a lot of great answers. Um, I'm not smart enough to prove that I'm intelligent, and uh, I, I'm not uh, a great orator or a great speaker. Uh, but I would like for you to know today that I, as your pastor, I do love you. Some of you have known me for 20 years, and, um, and some of you have known me for 10 years. Our church has been in existence for almost 15 years. And I, I just want you to know the day, today that, that I love you. Um, and I also want to ask us, uh, in light of that, to just um, increase our awareness or sensitivity. There, there are two different schools of thought relative to, um, you know, social distancing and wearing masks and coronavirus. And um, I, I would uh, just ask us today to make sure that when we come together as the body of Christ, that, that we're not trying to politicize those issues in the presence of the kingdom, number one. Um, and number two, to not be insensitive to those that may be concerned about getting coronavirus. Um, for example, like Chloe and Joe and Clint who stand at the front door. Um, Joe's in, in his, he, I mean, Clint is 80 and 81 and Joe is in her 70s. And they've been standing at our front door for 14 and a half years. Um, and the last thing I would want would be to be careless in uh, my attitude toward uh, a, a real virus that's going around and somehow contract that or, or cause them to contract that. Um, so, so let me just encourage you today. Um, we, we draw these battle lines and we, we put up our dukes and we, you know, either you're, uh, you know, a, a, a communist that wants everybody to uh, wear masks, um, you know, or an independent-minded person who, who nobody's going to tell them what to do. And I would just ask you as believers, uh, let, us, let us have this mind in us, which was in Christ Jesus, right? Who, who although he was equal with God, although he was God, he didn't come saying, uh, it's all about my reputation and it's all about my rights. I'm going to come and lay down my life. And so let us walk into this room and those issues not be issues on either side of the scale. Um, uh, Let us be sensitive to those who may not feel comfortable because they're scared of getting sick by gathering. Um, And let us us be different in those areas. Um, We're in our second week of looking at the women of Advent and we see these women listed in the genealogy in Matthew. But if you want to go ahead and turn to Joshua this morning, um, Joshua chapter 2, we're going to be looking at Rahab. But I want to read that genealogy in, um, in Matthew 1 that shows us these women that we're going to be talking about. And they're mentioned in many other places in Scripture, um, particularly um, uh, Rahab. Rahab's mentioned in Hebrews 11, one of two women, along with Sarah, mentioned in Hebrews 11. And she's also mentioned in James chapter 2 and verse number 25. And uh, the thing that is mentioned about her is her faith. And we'll see that faith in the text that we're going to read um, this morning. In Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. So last week we looked at Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon, um, who was one of the princes of Israel, uh, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, and I'm not sure where they get these names from. Um, I'm not compelled to name one of my children Salmon, um, or, or Dolphin, or you know Swordfish, or anything like that. Um, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, and we know that Boaz was the son of Rahab, and we're going to be talking about Rahab this morning, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of 
David. And so we see this, this lineage of um, Rahab. And if you're in Joshua 2, I want to begin to try to put this in its greater context. And uh, I want to tell you a story to try to help us understand today the context of the passage, but the context that we find ourselves in today. Um, when, when we were in Africa, um, one of the common problems in Africa among the people in Uganda that we went there to serve was a lack of water. We were in Kabong. You can look it up. Kabong is at 4,990 feet elevation. What that means is if there are two rainy seasons, the water comes gushing down. It fills up all the rivers and tributaries. But when you're at 5,000 feet, if you don't have anything dammed up, if you don't have any kind of reservoirs, all of that water runs down. And so the rainy season is for a couple of weeks or maybe a month. And when it's over, all the water is there for a while and then it's gone. And so if anybody's going to find any water, what they do is they they go to the riverbed and they dig in the riverbed. And if you dig in the riverbed enough, you're going to find some water down in the riverbed. The problem with getting water out of the riverbed is not only do people go to the riverbed to dig for water, people also go there to, quite frankly, relieve themselves. And the water then, along with the animals that are going through there, the water then is toxic. And people drink that dirty water and they get cholera. And then within a few hours or at the very least a few days, they become very sick and many people die from cholera because of the, the p- polluted water, the polluted water. What we did in Africa, our team did, and Bruce Schmidt led our team uh, up in northern Uganda, is, is he led a group of people to come and put in wells. When you put the well in, now the people have good, clean, fresh water. What happened, though, in Uganda is people would come and steal parts off of the well, and they would say, you can't have the water unless you pay for it. And so the water was not free, and the water was not flowing, and the people didn't have money, so they were left to go to the riverbed. Now, what I want you to understand is this. We didn't just go and meet with the guys that were stealing the parts and say, you know, we both have a different view of water and that's okay. You've got your view. I've got my view. What you do is you say, there has been an effort put forth to provide you with good, clean water, which you need to live. And if you don't have, you're going to die. And if you keep taking parts off of the well, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be trouble. You're going to be our enemy. As we look at at Scripture and we look at the book of Joshua, we need to understand that the the book of of Joshua is a part of 39 Old Testament books. If, If we start and take the broader look, there are five books of the law, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But then Joshua begins 12 books of history. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, jo- not Job, Esther. Stop at Esther. Those those twelve books of history. So we're reading about that history today. Goes into five books of poetry: Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then seventeen chapters uh, that are prophetic books, beginning beginning with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the way out to the book of Malachi. Um, Now, where's Joshua in all of that? Joshua is the first historical book. We understand from uh, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy that we talked about it last week. The book of Genesis begins in chapters 1 and 2 with creation, with with chapter... with chapter three, th- chapters three to five, we see the fall. Chapter six to nine, we see the flood. Chapters ten and eleven, we see the Tower of Babel. And then in chapter twelve, we see the introduction of Abraham. And here's the promise to Abraham from God: I'm going to take you, Abraham, and I'm going to make of you. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to use. I'm going to use you to bless the world. I want you to think of Abraham as this great well of fresh water that God wants to use to pour out fresh water to pour out nourishment to all of humanity through Abraham and his family. As we look at Genesis, we we talked about it last week, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. We come to the end of Abraham and, and Jacob and his family have gone into Egypt and we begin the book of Exodus and there arose a king who forgot about Joseph, didn't know Joseph. The people of God are in prison 
For 400 years, the Hebrew people, the, the Habirus as they were called, uh, were, were imprisoned by the Egyptians. They were, they were forced into slave labor. But all of a sudden, we see early on in Exodus, God raising up a man named Moses. And Moses is going to be the deliverer. Moses is the one who is drawn out of the water. Moses is the one who is going to go in and he's going to challenge Pharaoh and challenge the gods of Pharaoh. And the God of Moses is going to be victorious. And then there's going to be the Passover where they kill a lamb and they put its blood on the doorpost and the death angel passes over and God's people are set free because they put faith in the sacrifice of a lamb looking forward to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then they are set free and they start on their journey to the promised land, but we know they didn't make it there. They got out of Egypt. They, they begin their journey, and then we go from the book of Exodus to the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus is about how the people of God worship. They need to be taught how to worship because they have 400 years of paganism just ingrained in their soul. And so the book of Leviticus is telling them how to worship. And then the book of Numbers tells us that because of all of Egypt that was bound up in them, that they wouldn't trust God and they wouldn't worship God. In fact, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to the comforts of Egypt. They didn't want to have to struggle. And so they wandered around. The book of Numbers is about them wandering around in the desert for 40 years. They wandered around for 40 years. Uh, get this, get this, because the older generation that came fresh out of Egypt was in rebellion against God, and he had to clean out the old folks so that the young folks could go into the promised land. Think about that. Think about that. Let that sink in for a minute. The book of Deuteronomy is the book of the second law or the rewriting of the law or the reemphasizing of the law or the reteaching of the people, the reteaching of a new generation. And so we see this reiteration of the law that's given to them in the book of Deuteronomy. And then when we come to the, book of, the end of the book of Deuteronomy, now Moses passes and Joshua takes over. So we see these, these prominent figures in the Old Testament. We see Moses now going through these last four books of the law and now beginning the historical books is the book of Joshua. And Joshua is going in. Folks, listen to me. Joshua's going into the land, and Joshua is going to be seen by our contemporaries today as an oppressor. And the, the people in the land are going to be seen as an oppressed people. But we need to be very clear. Joshua is coming to bring fresh water. He is coming to bring fresh water. And the people in the land of Canaan are pagans. The people in the land of Canaan have sinned to their limit of sin and everything that happens to the people in the land of Canaan at the hand of Joshua by the decree of a holy God, by the design of a holy God is just, is right. Because quite frankly, if, if you're not worshiping the one true God, and if you're not worshiping him in a way that his word tells us we should worship him, if you're all about everybody coexisting, which we can't coexist together, there is but one God and he has revealed himself in his word. Then if you're trying to, to think that you can drink dirty, filthy toilet water and somehow have life. And that's what's happening here in these pagan cultures. They're offering you things that are not fresh water. They're stealing parts off of the well. They're asking you to go dig in the dirty riverbed and drink that stinking nasty water. And so when Joshua moves in, he's wiping these people out because the lineage of Jesus Christ is moving forward and the son is going to be born. And the son of God is going to tell us when he meets the woman at the well in John chapter four. He said, woman, if you knew the water that I had, he said, you would be asking me for a drink. There's only one place to go and get water and it's in Christ. And Jesus stood up in John chapter seven on that great day. And he said, if anybody's thirsty, let them, and he, he screamed it, let them come unto me. So what we see here in this old Testament narrative is God doing a work to ensure that the purity of water, of refreshment, of salvation, of life gets to us. So don't get bogged down in some of the things that you see and put them in our contemporary context. Please put them in their biblical context and also try to put them in their eternal context. This is a story of God getting fresh water 
to the world. And, and listen to this. Anyone not cooperating with God as he has revealed himself in his word is in competition with God. And the people of Jericho were competing with God and impeding impeding the good news of the gospel, impeding fresh water. These people were in bondage to sin. If you are not cooperating with God, you are in competition with God. And folks, listen to me. When you draw a line in the sand and you stand on the other side of the line and you say, God, it's on me and you, you will lose. Every time. Every time. And so we come to this story. What's going on? Joshua was going into the land and a lady named Rahab comes to the fore in the story. Let me, let me tell you a couple of things about Jericho before we, before we read the text and then look at um, just the story before us this morning. It was the gateway to the promised land. It was the gateway to the promised land. It was one of the strongest cities in Canaan. If they could take Jericho, they could take all of the other cities. Two things were going on. Number one, we already see, we're going to see in the text, for four, at least 40 years, the people in Jericho had been hearing stories about the Israelites. They heard about the, the Dead Sea parting. They heard about the victory that God gave them. They've been hearing about them. We're going to see in the text that the history that they've been hearing and the things that they've been seeing that have been communicated to them now have impacted their heart. They're aware that God is at work. So here's one of the largest fortified cities and the history of what's going on has weakened their heart, but now the Israelites see God going before them, and it is strengthening their heart. There are two things at play, but just some things about Jericho. It was the gateway to the promised land, one of the strongest cities in Canaan. It was a city of about 10 acres. The wall around Jericho was well, it had a circumference of about a half mile. The city of Jericho housed about uh, 2,000 people. Um, it was a profoundly uh, wicked city that was well-deserving of the wrath of God, well-deserving of the judgment of God. They were pagans. They were idolaters. They were in rebellion against God. And so we see the, the justice of God in destroying, um, in destroying Jericho. One of the very specific things that God intended to do in the process of moving into Jericho and destroying Jericho was to set aside a woman to set aside a woman who was a harlot, to play a critical role in the delivery of that son and the gushing forth of that life-giving water. Don't stand in the way of God and his mission. Cooperate with him, and we see Rahab doing that. So if you will turn to Joshua chapter 2 this morning. Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun sent two men secretly to Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. We see this is the second time spies have been sent into the land. We know back in the book of Numbers that, that 12 spies were sent into the land. Ten were bad and two were good, right? Joshua and Caleb came out of that. Now he's sending in two more spies, except he's sending them in secretly, and they're finding something completely different. It says, and they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Evidently they had uh, 5G technology there, so anything that was going on, the king knew all about it. Verse 4, but the woman who had taken the two men and hidden, um, but the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, "True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as a friend, uh, as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, um, um, two things. She's a prostitute and she's a liar. Number one, that's serious. Number two, so what? Do we think we're any better? God saves sinful people. 
the, the, the amazing thing, the thing that, that should, we should not get stumped on um, her profession and we should not get stumped on her lifestyle and we should not get stumped on her dishonesty and her deception. What we should be amazed at is the grace of God in, in using and saving broken people. I don't know about you, but that's good news. That's good news. Let's read on. Verse 8. But the men lay down, but, but the men lay down, before the men lay down, I'm having a hard time seeing this morning. I should not have color-coded all of my scriptures today and making it hard to read. Before the men lay down, she came up on the roof and said to the men, listen to this, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Let me just side note, don't, don't put God on trial. You're, 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 you're going to come up short if you put God on trial. Don't, don't, don't think that because you see something a certain way that that's the way God should see it and somehow you're just and he's unjust. She saw the, the, the justice of God in all of this. Verse 12, now then please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that, that you will save alive my family and mother and brothers, my, and my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So she knew death was coming. She wanted to be delivered from death. She knew that judgment was coming. She wanted to be saved. Verse 14, and the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and you shall gather into your house, your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street. His blood shall be upon his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They went into the wilderness. They went to Joshua and they gave the report in verse 24. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. The scarlet cord is significant. The red cord would look back to the Exodus, would look back to the Passover when the blood was put on the doorpost. The scarlet cord was a sign, just like the blood on the doorpost was a sign that looking back, they had killed an animal and the sign of that animal's death was its blood on the doorpost. The scarlet cord is hung out the window as a sign. That's what the text says. And it is a sign looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ who would die for our sin and our place. Therefore, judgment would not come on Rahab and her family because of her faith. 
putting that cord out was an act of faith to say, I am depending upon a sign that will keep me secure. I'm not depending on my righteousness. I'm going to go into this apartment or into this house or into this dwelling place like Noah and his family went into the ark and we are going to be secure and God is going to preserve us and take care of us because we are walking by faith in him. If you go to Joshua chapter 6, you can sort of see the end of the story. I think it is absolutely amazing that Rahab knew who Israel was, knew what God had done, and she confessed that everybody in the city knew that, but she was the only one that was willing to turn from her paganism and from her idolatry to the one true God. I think it's amazing that when they started to march on Jericho, that they marched around the city seven times. They marched around the city seven times. They marched around it on consecutive days. And that was all before the walls fell down. That was all before the judgment came. And what we see in that is this great grace of God. This grace that says, you have an opportunity. This grace that says, I want you to follow me. I want you to join me in in getting clean, fresh water to everyone so that there can be life. But they just sat there saying, we love our paganism. We love our idolatry. We love our false religion. We love our sin. And the walls fell down. I've actually been to Jericho and I've seen the fallen walls. It's quite amazing how the walls fell down from the inside out. They just collapsed. They just crumbled. And after the walls fell down, you can see in verse 17 of chapter 6, in the city and all that was within it, shall be devoured to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute. By the way, by the way, stay in your sin and all that awaits you is destruction. Nothing good comes out of it. Enjoy it for a season. It will turn bitter to you. It will lead to your and my destruction if we choose to stay there and say, no, I love my sin. Devoted to the Lord for destruction, only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. And if you go down to verse 22, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house. And by the way, it's believed, we don't know who Rahab's, we don't know who these men were, but we know that her husband's name was Salmon. And it's believed that one of these men was, was Salmon. Somebody said it was uh, uh, one, of the, one of the priests. Um, but, but we, you know, we can, we can just take what people have said throughout history that they're, they're not really sure of. But she did marry Salmon, and he very well could have been one of these men. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. And at the time of this writing, you could probably look her up and hear her recounting of the story as evidence of the faithfulness of God and the truthfulness of of his word. As we read that text, let me me just give you a a major theme in thinking through it. Encountering God leads to repentance or rebellion. Encountering God leads to repentance or rebellion. Repentance leads to unbelievable life. Repentance leads to unbelievable life. Rebellion leads to unbearable death. Let me say that again. Encountering God leads to repentance or rebellion. There's no neutral response to God. There's no neutral response to God. Encountering God leads to repentance or rebellion. Repentance leads to unbelievable life. I was talking with a friend of mine this week on a Zoom call, and he said, he said, repentance always leads to celebration. Now, 
rationally, that doesn't work. We think, oh, I got to give up my sin. I love my sin. I don't know about you, but I love my sin. Can I just make an honest confession this morning? Anybody else here love their sin? Anybody else here struggling with sin? Anybody else here having a hard time giving up their sin? I mean, let's be honest. Let's be honest. But here, here's what I want to tell you this morning. Re re repentance will always lead to celebration. Repentance will always lead to unbelievable life. But if you say, man, I'm going to hang on, my, hold on to my sin. I don't want to hear what God has to say. I don't want to hear what this preacher has to say. I didn't come to church this morning for somebody to talk to me about my sin. Rebellion will always lead to unbearable death. Mark that down from the text of Scripture. Turn to Christ this morning. Are you in repentance or rebellion? Rahab, in the text, was an immoral woman. She, would, she was a dishonest woman. She was a deceptive woman. Some more things about Rahab. She was fierce. She was independent. She was self-sufficient. She was entrepreneurial. It is unheard of for a sinful Gentile woman to be included in a Jew Jewish genealogy, to be included in such a critical role in the redemptive plan of God. You say, why would God do that? Just to prove to us as a broken, fallen people, number one, the humanity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? He is fully God. He is fully human. If he had not been human, he could not have died as a man in our place for men for our sin. That, that's critically important. But he was also fully God because he could not have been a perfect man were he not fully God. But let us understand this, this morning that as you read a genealogy, if I'm writing my genealogy, I'm going to sanitize it. We'll talk about all the great people. I have had Great Danes in the past, and we we loved our Great Danes, and we would we would breed our Great Danes, and somebody would send us a pedigree of their dog that we would breed our dog with, and you, all, everything was great. Champion, 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 champion. Run, they, none of them ever said runt of the litter. None of them ever said runt of the litter. This genealogy is true, if for no other reason, it's quite frankly very honest. It includes broken people, and God intentionally used broken people so we would understand that this is the truth, that this is the Messiah, that this is the, the Christ of God, that this is the Redeemer. So we look at that Jewish genealogy, and there is this inclusion of this sinful woman, and that offers me hope. As God moves through and says, hey, I want you to take this clean water and I want you to share it with everybody in Locust Grove. They're going, the people in Locust Grove are going down to the riverbed and they're digging down in the riverbed and they're pulling up polluted water and they're drinking it and they think it's good. You folks over there at South Point, you've got fresh water. Well, wait, wait a minute, Lord, I've got a checkered past. Wait a minute, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Wait a minute, Lord, I'm a broken man. I want to use you, Mark. I want to use you, Pat. I want to use you, Lane. I want to use you, Luke. I want to use you. I want to use you, Haley. I, I, want, to, I want to use you in my mission to accomplish my objective to let everybody in Locust Grove and in McDonough know there is fresh water. There is life. You don't have to dig in the riverbed. All you need to do is come to Christ and the water flows freely. Let me walk through the story of Rahab by way of an outline. Number one, we see Rahab's cooperation. Rahab is faith in action. The writer of Hebrews tells us that. The, uh, James tells us that, James chapter 2. The, the, thing, the thing that they mention is her action of hiding these men, of preserving life for her family by hiding these men. Verses 1 to 7 is her cooperation. These seven verses are the actions that were indicative of saving, redeeming, transforming faith. Although she was uh, a prostitute and although she was dishonest, God still saved her and redeemed her and changed her and gave her a completely new future. Secondly, we see Rahab's confession, and I just want to mention the details of her confession um, um, briefly um, this morning. We see it in verses 8 to 11. So if you're taking an outline, Rahab's cooperation, verses 1 to 7, Rahab's conf confession, verses 8 to 11. Let me break the confession down, down for you. L let, me, let me just encourage you today. I want to ask you, do you believe these things about God? Do you believe these things about God? Rahab said, there is a God 
There is a God. Secondly, she said, he owns and controls everything. He owns Jericho. He owns these these 10 acres of land. He owns this wall. He owns these 2,000 people that inhabit Jericho. He he essentially would be saying what the psalmist said in Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all the people who dwell therein. It all belongs to God. He owns everything. It is the godness of God. He is just God. Thirdly, here's what she was saying. God has an an undeniable, unstoppable plan. You can't stop the plan of God. We we look back 40 years. We saw the Red Sea part. We saw y'all marching. We saw you knock out these other people. We see you coming here. We know that we are hopeless. There's nothing that we can do. Our hearts are melting within us. Why? Because this God is so huge and so powerful that nothing absolutely can stop him. Do you believe that about God? You believe that God has a mission that he has invited you to be a part of and it doesn't matter what nation you live in. It doesn't matter what background you come from. It doesn't matter and it does matter what's happening in our nation. Please, I'm not downplaying that, but I'm telling you something. We're, we're dealing with a higher ethic here. We're dealing with a different power than political power here. We're dealing with a God who is in control of all things and he's got a plan and nothing stopping his plan. He's got a plan and nothing stopping his plan. He has an undeniable and unstoppable plan. She said, we've heard about his powerful and supernatural acts for 40 years. We serve, here's what she's saying, we serve competing gods, which might not be a good thing for us. We as a city are under judgment. We are hopeless and we have nowhere to turn but to ourselves for self-preservation. If you don't turn to Christ, you have nowhere to turn but to yourself. And I promise you, you're going to let yourself down. You'll never be good enough. You'll only be judged. She is proclaiming the enormity and the power and the goodness of God. Folks, please hear me. Don't miss it. God is good. God is good. God goes into a land where people are drinking polluted water, and he puts in this well of himself and says, I want water to flow freely to all. Those that are competing with God are trying to stop the the flow of clean, life-giving water. And it is a good God who removes the obstacles. It is a good God who judges nations. It is a good God who deals with pagans who have been in rebellion toward him for generation after generation after generation. She is proclaiming the enormity of Almighty God. Rahab, listen carefully, Rahab understood that Jericho was under judgment and the only hope in the midst of divine judgment was a humble appeal to a holy God. I'll say by way of application that right now the land that we live in is under judgment. America is under judgment. I, I don't have the time to go down the list, but I'll tell you, we're not, we're not worried about God. We're worried about a million other things that show that we as a culture are on a wholesale level in absolute rebellion against a holy God, against the good God. We're shaking our fist in the face of God. Read the second Psalm. Men join arm in arm. We're we're taking votes and we're making decisions. We're passing laws and they're all in opposition to the clear revelation of a good God. We are under judgment. Here's the thing that really ought to scare us. The thing that really ought to scare us is twofold. Number one, that our hearts are not melting within us because we are under judgment. Everything around us tells us that we are under judgment. It ought to scare us to death at at the judgment that we see that if it continues to proliferate is is going to swallow us up and swallow our children up. It ought to cause our hearts to melt within us, but it also ought to cause us to turn to Christ as our only hope, as our only hope. And so I I challenge you and I encourage you this morning to confess our sin and to confess our fear, to confess our realization that we are under judgment, to let what's going on around us strike you at the core of your being and your heart and let the judgment of God cause you to melt from within and look to Christ as your only hope. Encountering God leads to repentance or rebellion. Repentance leads to unbelievable life, but Rebellion leads to unbearable death. The third thing we see, verses 12 and 13, is Rahab's concern. Rahab was concerned for herself. She did not want to face the judgment. 
How can I get grace and not judgment? How can I cooperate with God and not compete? How can I get grace and not judgment? Here's how you can get grace. All you got to do, hang this scarlet cord out the window and grace will fall on you. Put your faith in the one who shed his blood, who died for you and rose victorious over sin. That is where grace is found in Christ. And your house won't collapse and you will be saved. Secondly, she was concerned about the salvation of her family. I remember uh, a day, I remember when I got saved. I, I couldn't help. I, went, I wanted to go to everybody that I knew and tell them about Christ. I wanted to go to everybody that I knew and share the gospel with them. Folks, apart from Jesus Christ, men and women will die and be separated from God forever. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. If you, come, if you come to Christ, you can go to the Father. But if you reject Christ, you will never get to the Father, not by any means or any religion. There is no other way. And so Rahab, Rahab was concerned, and we should be concerned for those around us. Fourthly, we see in verses 14 to 22, Rahab's commitment. Rahab was saved because of her willingness to be identified with and by the sign of the scarlet cord. Rahab was saved because of her willingness to be identified with and by the sign of the scarlet cord. They, they, didn't, they didn't pull up and see, uh, uh, can you pull it up on GPS? Where did Rahab live? Was that like 4222 Jericho Lane? No. Is, is, there, is there some kind of symbol painted on the wall that says this is Jericho or Rahab's house? Did somebody put her name there, say this is Rahab? No, th there was nothing there that identified the, the, the place as Rahab's house. There was only one identifying marker. The only identifying marker there was the scarlet cord. And they said, when we see the scarlet cord, just like when we see the blood on the doorpost, judgment is going to pass over you. When we put our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone to make us right with God, judgment will pass over us. And so... Rahab was saved because of her willingness to be identified with and by the sign of the scarlet cord. We are saved when we're willing, willing to immerse our identity in ourselves and our life into who Christ is and find our life in Him and find our identity in Him and Him alone. The cord was the means of salvation for Rahab. The cord was the means of salvation for her Family and the cord looks forward to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is your only means of salvation for judgment. And then, and then fifthly, the fifth thing we see when we go to chapter 6 is this. We see Rahab's commendation. Those guys kept their word. God kept his word. Joshua kept his word. And Rahab is saved, and we, we already read about that. She was allowed outside the camp. But before long, Nashon, who was a prince in Israel, his son was Salmon. Rahab married Salmon's son. And now Rahab is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And quite frankly, I don't know uh, anything about Rahab's influence on Boaz, but Boaz was an amazing man, and that was her son. Bo Boab, Boaz was a man of, of character, a man who wanted to honor God and believed his word. It shows us, and again, according to other places in Scripture, Hebrews 11 and James chapter 2, that Rahab is an example of saving faith. And so as we look at that outline, I'll, I'll say this again. Encountering God leads to repentance or rebellion. Repentance leads to unbelievable life. Rahab experienced unbelievable life. Rebellion leads to unbearable death. Let me, let me give you some implications as we... As we um, I'm, not, I'm not fixing to close. Um, I've, got, I've got a few minutes to give you a few implications from the text. What, what can we take home from this? Number one, the gospel is for those who know that they are sinners. The gospel is for those who know that they are sinners. We should, we should be the most humble people on the face of the planet because we know that we are broken people before a holy God. Every single one of us, best Christian in this room, should not want to be identified in any other way than through the finished work of Jesus Christ and recognize that they needed every bit of it and they, they add nothing to it. The gospel is not for people who are whole. The gospel is for people who are sick. The gospel is for those who know that they are sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
The gospel is for people who know that they can't save themselves, who know that they need someone to deliver them from judgment. And Rahab knew that. Jesus Christ came and bore our sin in his body on the tree. He died our death in our place and he gave us his life. The gospel is for people who know that they need a substitute who know that Jesus is the only one who could die for their sin in their place. The gospel is for those who know that they're sinners. I would ask you this morning, are you clinging to idols? Are you enslaved by a a pagan religious system? Are you thinking that you will hang on to your sin and take your chances with the judgment? You you won't make it. I would also say, are you self-righteous? Do you say, I don't need this Jesus. I'll do it on my own. I will be good enough. Are you self-justifying? Does the thought of you calling yourself a sinner and identifying yourself as a sinner and saying that you are broken and saying that you are hopeless, does that offend your pride this morning? The second thing we see is this. To be redeemed is to be redefined. To be redeemed is to be redefined. Now, for some reason, they kept calling her the harlot, right? All the way through. Book of Hebrews, she's the harlot. The book of James, she's Rahab the harlot. But when she was redeemed, she was redefined. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. God redeems people from a terrible past. God redeems us with erasing grace that obliterates sin and makes us into brand new people. God redeems us. He gives us a new identity and and looks at us 24-7. There is never a time that God the Father looks at us that he doesn't see us in our identity in Christ. There's never a time. God's not shaking his head at you. God's not pointing his finger at you. You have been redeemed and you have been redefined. I don't have to live a life being beaten down. I don't have to live a life being depressed because of my old identity. I don't have to live a life in fear of man thinking that somebody's going to find out what I used to be like because I have been redeemed and I have been redefined and I am not the man that I used to be. Some of us fear man because, quite frankly, people who don't get the gospel, even in church, like to keep people in their sin before us and deny the grace and the freedom that is in Christ. There are some people that will hear about your past and they want to lock you into your past. I don't know about him. You know what he did. You know what he used to do. Are you in Christ? then you have been set free. Are you in Christ? Then you are drinking clean water. Are you in Christ? Then you're not going to the riverbed and digging up the polluted, stagnant water. To be redeemed is to be redefined. I don't know who you are, what you've been through, what kind of trouble you caused, how you see yourself, or how even the world sees you. I want to tell you, if you will come to Christ, you will be made a new creature. You will have a new life, and God will say, come join me in my mission. Help us get fresh water to the world. Thirdly, God is good even when the news is bad. (laughs) God is good even when the news is bad, right? The Israelites are coming. They're wiping everybody out in front of them. That's bad news if you're an inhabitant of Jericho. That's bad news if you're a Canaanite. That's bad news if you're an Amorite. God is good even when the news is bad, if you trust him. Folks, I want to tell you that we are in uh, some form of a pandemic, but I want to tell you that God is enormous. I will tell you that we're living, it's indicative if you study any, if you study just the surface level of history, we we are uh, gasping, if, if even we're gasping for breath as a nation, we're dying as a nation, we are a nation, a nation under judgment, but let us not forget that God is enormous. If you're sick, God is enormous. If you're in poverty, God is enormous. If you've lost your house or job, God is is enormous. If you're moved away from your familiar surroundings, God is enormous. If you lose all of your power, God is enormous. And Rahab lost all of those things, but she traded them in for the enormity of God. If you have God, you have good news. And God is good when everything else is bad. 
If our faith is in him and our hope is in him and he's invited us to be a part of his mission because he has saved us, then we ought to see the big picture. Fourthly, you must have something worth dying for in, in, in order to have something worth living for. That's backwards. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, folks. Sin ain't worth living for. I'm, I'm sorry. I said ain't. Sin isn't worth living for. It's not. A house isn't worth living for. A car isn't worth living for. A vacation isn't worth living for. Prosperity isn't worth living for. Just breathing isn't worth living for. I think the reason we're so scared of dying is because we don't have anything to live for. And we're not willing to die for anything. You see, this lady was willing to die. There was something that was worth dying for. She was willing to take a huge risk. Here God is moving through with his people. She's not sure if they're going to keep their word or not. I mean, they're destroying everybody. What makes them think that she is going to be saved? But she was willing to risk everything. You, you must have something worth dying for in order to have something worth living for. Rahab was willing to risk everything for three reasons. Number one, she was fully convinced that the God of Israel was the one true God. When you are fully convinced that the God of Israel is the one true God, you can hear Jesus say, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. You can hear Jesus say, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. You can hear the apostle Paul say, I die daily. I've got something worth living for. Because if I stand for Christ and you come and take my life, I've got something worth dying for. That makes all the difference in life when we have something that we're willing to die for. Are you willing to die for Jesus Christ and for his cause? Are you convinced that the God of Israel is the one true God? Are you convinced that the God of the Bible is the one true God? She was fully convinced that the God of Israel was the one true God. She was convinced that the God of Israel was in control of all of human history and on an undeniable mission, and she wanted to be a part of it. Are you convinced that God is in control of everything? Are you convinced that, that all of human history is a story of the mission of God? Are you convinced that there is a way that you can join God on his mission by resting in the finished work of his son? And if you are, then you have something that's worth dying for and you have something that's worth living for. She was willing to risk everything because she wanted to be saved. <laughs> she was Salvation is a matter of turning from all that you are and turning to all that Christ is. And that's, 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 that's the greatest thing, the most joyful thing that we can ever do is turning from all that you are to all that Christ is. That's what repentance is. She wanted to be saved. She wanted her family to be saved. And she knew that there was only one source and one means of salvation, and she trusted that source. And to her, it was that scarlet thread that represented our Lord Jesus Christ. And that was worth dying for. That was worth dying for. And then that gave, her, that gave meaning to her, her life. I ask you this morning, what are you living for? What are you giving your life to, and what are you risking your life for? What are you living for? What are you giving your life to? And what are you risking your life for? Fifthly, fifth thing, we must care about those around us who are under judgment. Abraham, Genesis 12, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Now I've got this plan, and I'm, uh, this plan is going to culminate with, with the coming of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I'm incorporating these people into my plan as I move through, and that plan is focused on redeeming people from beginning to end. In fact, he told his disciples before he left, he said, hey, the Spirit's coming. He's going to live inside of you. But what I want you to do, I want you to go to all the nations and I want you to tell people about me. I want you to tell them about my death, my burial, and my resurrection. And I want them to come to a saving knowledge and they would gather together as the family of God. They would gather together as the people who stood there at the well and experienced what the woman at the well experienced in John chapter 4 would hear the words of Jesus in John chapter 7. We've received this water, but there's so much water 
water that is always flowing that we're going to take it to everybody around us because we know without this water they will die and come under the judgment of a holy, righteous, perfect, good God. We must care about those around us who are under judgment. Um, I, I would just say, because Rahab is a woman, it would, it would be worthy of us to look at just a couple of things. Um, ladies, never underestimate the, pl the plan that God has to use you for his kingdom and his glory. Here's, here's a single woman whose life is completely wrecked, but she is used as an illustration of faith throughout the Bible. I ain't making this up. She's, she's here in Joshua, and, and she's there in Hebrews, and she's there in James, and she should serve as a tremendous encouragement to men and women. Secondly, ladies, I would say never underestimate the value of family and your role in it. We, we live in, a, in an age where life is not valued we live in an age where the family is being decimated and quite frankly, the church is not speaking to the issue of the, the God-ordained roles that he's put us in. Folks, let me tell you something. If you reject the roles that God has given as a design for the family, it is absolutely, absolutely, historically, sociologically, biologically, forget theologically for a minute, it is impossible to exist as a society apart from the roles, roles that God has laid out in his word for the family. Absolutely impossible. If, if you want to look at a nation that's under judgment, if you want to go and dig up the rotting corpse of that, you go to two places. You go to the church and you go to the family. And, and when, 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 they're, when they're off, when they're messed up, society's going to be off. It's going to be messed up. And our families are a mess. And, and they're a mess because we look at the roles that God has established for us and we've been convinced by the voices around us, the voices that are, that are not from Scripture that say, hey, uh, these men are abusive and these men are patriarchal and we hate a patriarchal system and, 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 and women should not be rightly related to their Husbands and submission is a bad thing. And I understand that there are abusive men. I understand there are abusive women. Some guys have been beat up by women too. I understand that we've messed it all up because of sin, but that doesn't negate what God has given to us in his word. And there, there, are, there are couple after couple after couple that can talk about how glorious it is when you order yourself according to Scripture, and we see that happening. This woman marries a godly man, and God uses her, and she brings forth godly offspring. Let us return to the values that God has established for us for the family. And ladies, I would encourage you to embrace God's Word. Embrace God's Word. I mean, somebody's already got the handle. They've turned it. The thing is flushed. You can get flushed with it or you can look at God's word and say, you know what? I'm going to trust God. I'll even use the word submission. That should not be a negative term. That should be a positive term. That should be a positive term. By the way, submission doesn't mean passionless. Submission doesn't mean passive. This woman was not passive. Tamar was not passive. These women are not passive women. It doesn't mean they're brainless. It doesn't mean they're doormats. It doesn't mean they're useless. It doesn't mean that they have value. But here's what I will tell you. What has been robbed from us is the value of being a godly wife and the value of being a godly mother and the value of influencing your children. And I would beg you, parents, I would beg you, put your freaking phone down. My, my Lord, please stop. Stop. You got you hit. You got you. Forgive me. Forgive me. I'm going to get fired. I mean, we got, we got our heads, you know, neck, you know, neck deep in our phones. We, we're, we're not paying any attention to our kids. How in the world could you be on Facebook that much if you're taking care of your children? And, and, and at the root of it is a rejection of the design that God has given us in his word for the family. And so I, I, I beg you today, put the power of the gospel on display through your family, and we see that in Rahab, and we see just a contemporary application for us today. I would ask you as I close, and I'm closing now, have you trusted Christ? Have you given 
your life to him and his mission. Have you trusted Christ? Have you trusted Christ? Have you said, you know what I'm going to do with my life? I'm going to give it to Jesus. I'm going to give it to his mission, to his cause, to his purpose. Are you living your new identity in him? Are you, are you all caught up in how messed up you were and you just can't get out of it? Christ saved you out of that. He's given you a new identity. Are you aware of the people around you who need fresh water? We can, we can say, oh, a bunch of crazy people, a bunch of godless people, <laughs> a bunch of wicked people. Ah, the world's a messed up place. And all you people over there at the gas pump at Ingalls, you're wicked. <laughs> no, they've just been going down and they've been digging in the riverbed and they've been drinking polluted water. And there ain't no life in that. And we're sitting over there at our gas pump saying that, that we have stood underneath the fountain that flows and is fresh water, is life-giving water. And all we can do is rail on somebody who's been drinking polluted water, who's got spiritual cholera. And we're the ones that are keeping the water from them. Folks, we need to be digging wells everywhere we go and providing people all around us with fresh water. There has never been a greater time to be the church and to proclaim good news to those around us than the time that we currently live in right now. Will you receive fresh water this morning? Will you tell those around you about the fresh water, about the source of life? Will you live for him? Will you die for him? Encountering God leads to repentance or rebellion. Repentance leads to unbelievable life. Rebellion leads to unbearable death. Every week at South Point, we have, uh, we have this juice. I hope you picked up a, a cup on the way in, and you can take that top off, and there's a wafer. You know what this is? This is like blood on the doorpost. This is like a scarlet thread hanging from a window, except we understand it better now. This represents the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus bled and Jesus died and gave his life for our sin. He is the only way that the wrath of God could be satisfied and Christ satisfied it. And so what we do now, just like with the scarlet cord, they were looking forward with the juice and the wafer, we're looking back in one way. We're looking back to the finished work of Christ, his death and his burial and his resurrection. And we remember him and we're proclaiming our faith in him through these symbols. I'm not saying these symbols save you. I'm just saying that it is an outward physical expression of something that you are saying by partaking of these things, that this is a reality in my heart, that I am saved and I'm celebrating that this morning and remember what Christ did for me. But you're also saying that no matter what happens in the midst of all the chaos and all the craziness and all the judgment that's going on in the world, that above all of that, I'm not necessarily looking forward to what's going to happen politically or what's going to happen economically or what's going to go on with the stock market. I'm looking for something that's much better, and I'm living for something that's much better. I'm looking for Jesus to come back. And this is what we're proclaiming. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so Jesus said, take this. He said, take and eat. This is my body. And then he said, drink ye all of it. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, our hearts are filled with gratitude. Thank you for Rahab. Thank you for your great grace. Thank you for showing us that life is not just haphazard and you're not just running around as a spastic God out of control. But you are a God who is good. You are a God who is holy. You are a God who is perfect. You are a God who has a plan. And your plans will be accomplished and nothing will stop your plan. And I thank you that by your grace, you have included us in that plan. I thank you that you included Rahab. I thank you, Lord, that you used her to bring forth a son. And I thank you that she was used in the lineage 
of a line of people that were flawed, that were broken, that were sinful, but ultimately brought forth a son in the fullness of time. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were born and that you lived a life of perfect righteousness, a life that we could not live. And you died a cruel death, a death that we deserve to die, but you died for our sin in our place. And we thank you this morning that you rose victorious over an enemy that we could not defeat. And I thank you this morning that anybody in this room that will trust in you can have life, can have fresh water, can stop digging in the riverbed, can stop believing lies, can stop worshiping pagan gods, can stop believing that their sin satisfies. They can know that there is this well that is overflowing and the water gives life. And I pray that men and women would turn to you and trust you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.